Good morning. I'd ask if you are able, please rise for the reading of God's Word. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 20 through 22. And the word of the Lord reads this way. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. And this is the word of the Lord. If you're thankful for it this morning, join me in saying thanks be to God. So today's sermon is bet your life on that. Bet your life on that. Precious little is said in these passages today, but all display a most precious time, the end of life. It's tough asking people to truly consider the question, are you, are you willing to bet your life on that? Are you sure? Because our culture is, is just absolutely inoculated against risk, danger, litigation. For instance, Man has been burning fires for 6,000 years, right? Young Earth creationists. Many of those fires had chimneys, I would wager. I have two chimneys now. A chimney is a pile of rocks oriented with a hole in the middle for the smoke and direct heat to escape from, right? Well, at least it used to be up until the last 50 years, right? Now it's $8,000 each in repairs before it's safe to do what our ancestors have done for the remainder of history, right? Something so easy, it's a fire and a stack of rocks, and it goes up. So common to man, yet here I am asking myself, am I willing to bet my life on that? <laughs> might burn down my house, might burn down me. So easy, yet so weirdly complicated. Looking at the pattern of most of our lives, we struggle to answer that question in a satisfying way. I think most things in the present, we just push to the future. And as I would often say, that's, that's future Russ's problem. He'll deal with that when he gets there, right? Whether it might be retirement, whether it might be repairs on homes, whether it might be fixing that knock on in your car, that's future Russ's problem. When the reality is the things that we do each and every day set the trajectory for where our life is going. Each day, with each choice, we could ask, am I willing to bet my life on this? Am I sure about that? If, at the end of our days, we want to remain people of faith, Hebrews has time and again called us to consider today, faith today, if we would have faith tomorrow. We've heard warning after warning of making sure we understand that today matters for all eternity. We've gotten to look through portions of Abraham's life last week and the weeks before, and now as we consider the remaining patriarchs in our passage, we zero in on the end of their life, and we ask, did they have faith still? Did they have faith still? What did they bet their life on? When we look at the patriarchs that we have, we see all of these different examples that the author brings up for Abraham. But then when we get to Isaac and to Jacob and to Joseph, we just see these short little snapshots of the blessings at the end of their life. Why is that? Of course, from the background of the Old Testament, those are really important questions. Does, he, does Isaac still have faith? His dad wanted to kill him. You would think that he would deconstruct and walk away from his faith today, Right? I mean, that's, that's what our culture would certainly say. So, so what gives? Where's Isaac? Does he finish? What about Jacob? He got there by some wily means. How, does he finish? We think back to Genesis 3.15 and we say, where's the seed of the woman? Where's the promised one coming? Is it still there? Is there still hope? We look at the promise given to Abraham and we say, where's the people? Will they finish? 
What did they bet their life on? Did they have faith still? The first thing I want you to see today is sojourners at home. Sojourners at home. A sojourner is simply a resident alien living among a people of another nationality. Abraham was, was indeed that. He was called to a land that he, God, would show him, but it's not his yet, right? Isaac, still a sojourner when we get to him in this passage. The land's not his yet. Jacob, a sojourner in the land and in Egypt, right? It's not his either. Joseph, a sojourner, even though he's in top office in a foreign land, that's not his land. So let's cut to the chase. There's not a whole lot of exegesis you have to do in this passage. It makes it really simple. At the heart of all these blessings that we see is a faith that a man who is simply a sojourner, a man who did not own land, could talk about the peoples who would serve his descendants and the nations who would ultimately honor them in their land. That's what's happening. It's that simple. That's, that's today. These people are sojourners. They don't own land. They don't have great peoples yet. And yet in each of their promises, as they give their blessing forward, they talk about all the peoples, all the descendants, and all the nations serving their people. That sounds actually kind of crazy, right? If you were listening in on these blessings, you're like, all right, maybe we should have given the blessing like five years ago before, you know, Isaac's a little, he's a little ripe, you know? This sounds crazy. I mean, this is like Pastor Matt assigning portions of my pizza for dinner tonight to his kids, right? He doesn't even have pizza to give away. And he's like, Chapman, you will have all the pepperoni that you want. And because it's Rusty's pizza that we're dividing, it will have onions and it will not have any mushrooms forever, right? That's, that's what's happening. Isaac is assigning out this land and this prestige that he doesn't have. It's not his to give, right? He doesn't, what kind of blessing is that? having sold our house and then going to the bank and not having a check just saying it's sold and they're like cool we need a check before we give you money like that's how this works no but it, it they, they blessed me with it they, they promised it to me it's not yours yet bro right and he's still giving it away why does he do this how does he do this where does this come from where does he get off giving my pizza away well it changes things if we find out that Pastor Matt was promised this pizza to him. Now it makes sense, right? Of course he can divide it. It's promised to him. I, I'm going to get the pizza, and it'll be yours. And you can give it away as you please. Now everything starts to make sense a lot more. And so ground zero here, with all these guys, they are operating out of the promise. It's that simple. They were operating out of the promise. On their deathbeds, they trust in the promise given to Abraham. They take it and they give it forward. That's the nature of the blessing. That's the, nation, the nature of, of passing on inheritance. One commentator says this, as one generation succeeded another and the promises still awaited fulfillment, they weren't there yet, they weren't a great people, all that stuff. His purpose was effectively served by pointing to the triumph of faith in the face of death, the last and darkest trial of all, as a witness to the reality of faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. Verse 1, the death of faith is, if anything, even more remarkable than the life of faith. You see these men here at the end of their life, having gone through all that they have gone through, that he chooses not to remark on here. And at the end of their life, they say the promise is still ours and I'm giving it to you, son. We'll see this promise through. So my question then is, how do you then be a sojourner at home? Seems like an oxymoron. If you're a sojourner, you don't, you're an alien here. 
but you're still yet at home. It, it belongs to you. It's just not yours yet. How do you live here as a sojourner? When you think about your career, when you walk into your job, when you walk into work, how do you live as a sojourner? You're an alien there. You don't belong, but it's yours. How are you going to take that? How are you going to live in light of that? Does that change the way that you relate to your coworkers? That you're not the same. That they're not going to get to stay in the land. Does it change the way that you do your job? The way that you execute it? The one that you work for? Does it change the desires of which you even are part of the field that you're in? As you consider going into a career, whether you're at school, whether you're still a young one dreaming about being an astronaut, why do you want to be the thing that you want to be? How does that serve God's kingdom? How is it going to have you living as a sojourner at home? You think about your hobbies and your activities, the things that you're involved in, whether it's sports, to exercise, to art, to entertainment, to music, to whatever, the cooking. Why do you do that? How do you do that as a sojourner? What does it mean to be an alien doing those things in a place that is not your home, but will be? How do you actually put boots to grounds for that? Because those seem a little ambiguous. I tried to name some pretty specific detail for you, but the question's still kind of like, well, I don't know. <laughs> Good question. It is. Thank you. You can spend the rest of the week with that one. Do you adopt the colors of the land? Its aims, its purposes, its values. When I say, how do you live as a sojourner at your work? Your work has values. It has purposes. It has aims. It has goals. Do those align with yours? Or are you at odds? Do you consider how your colors, aims, purposes, values conflict with the place that you spend your time at? How do you live as a sojourner at home? Have you truly considered what it means to live as a Christian here in, in this room, in your job, in your home? What does it mean to live as a Christian here? Why was it that Paul was always getting stoned and whipped and jailed? Is it only because he was going after Pharisees and Jews and they got upset and they overreacted? Have you told people why you do what you do? They know you're weird. They know you're a Christian. You do that God thing. Sometimes they see your Bible. Sometimes you use Bible verses. But then when you specifically choose to make a stand or make a decision that's contrary to everyone else, do you tell them why and where it came from? I can't partake in that. It would bring dishonor to my king are words that most people will never say. Why can't we say that? When our friends or our coworkers are involved in something that we shouldn't be involved in, why can't we say, I cannot be a part of that. It will bring dishonor to my king. Because we're ashamed of the ones whose colors we bear. If we truly understood 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we would understand that we are always ambassadors and we are always making a case the problem is, is that some of us have put on the colors of the other side and we forgot who we represent. When we walk into this world, we need to understand that we are always giving of ourselves to everything that we're involved in. At all times. You can't just exist. When you're a sojourner, you're immersed. You are in it. And you are always giving of yourself. We call that worship. We give our attention, we give our energies, we give everything we are to what we are about. And so ask yourself, the things that you invest yourself in, are they growing you as the person God has called you to be? Because it is the pattern of this land that we are sojourners in to do these things. Waste your life, 
develop nothing, and consume everything. If you want to fit in, that's what we will do. Our entertainment culture, our media culture, our jobs are oriented around you wasting your life, developing nothing truly, and consuming everything you can get your hands or eyeballs on. In your day-to-day life as a sojourner, as you wander among a people of another nationality, what are you learning? What are you practicing? What are you getting reps in at? What are you exposing and revealing about who God is and what he has made? This is a relatively easy question for me to answer when we think about the four Gs, a tool that we use here. God's good, gracious, great, and glorious. For me, God is good. And so I don't have to look elsewhere. I love the goodness of God. And I see it in all of creation, so I like to explore it. It's easy for me to look around and see God at work. It's easy for me to look around and expose and reveal and craft and create and show who God is and what he has made. It comes very naturally to me. I understand that it is more difficult for some of you. But you have your own way of doing these things. God has uniquely gifted you, Romans chapter 12, to be a part of a body, to do specific things that help reveal who he is and what he has done. And if our life is simply about producing nothing, developing nothing, wasting our life and consuming everything, then we're not Christians Because that's not what the scriptures describe a Christian as being. A Christian is a sojourner who's a part of a living body. Stones being assembled together around their chief cornerstone. Arms, joints, ligaments, ears, feet, hands, moving and working together. Learning, practicing, revealing a God to the world. Why do I do that? Well, for one, because I have to give an account. He's going to ask me what I have done with what he has given, and I don't want to be the one with the talent that was buried. I'm going to have to give an account for how I lived my life. That should be, one would say, motivating. Um, If that's not motivating enough, preferably from the worship and glory side, I would say this, because I live expectantly for the world that is to come. I'm looking forward to the new heavens and new earth. It's more to explore. It's more to see. It's uncorrupted. And I want to take everything that I have learned here and bring it with me. I want to hit the ground running or the sky flying, whatever may happen in the new heavens and the new earth. That should be driving us forward. I'm a sojourner. I'm looking forward to my home. And I'm even here now. So how do you live each day expectant of promise, because that's what was happening with these men. Promise was expected, and they looked forward to it. There were sojourners at home. So how do you live here as a sojourner? The second thing I want you to see is that covenants rule everything. Covenants rule everything. I could build on this sermon, I would, I would say the first thing is that you have a promise, right? That's given. But it's more than a promise. It's a promise wrapped up in a relationship or a covenant, right? It has a context. The promise has a context. There's a covenant. There's covenant relationships. And covenants rule everything. When you think about this promise, this blessing that's being passed on, when Isaac passed it on to Jacob, Jacob wasn't just getting the goods, right? He got God too. He got God. When you think of Joseph, the last one here, I feel like Joseph helps us see that here. When Joseph is mentioned here, it says he made mention of the Exodus. What Exodus? It hasn't happened yet. 
That should matter to you when you read basic like reading skills. I'm trying to see if any minds are like, oh yeah, wow, what Exodus? It's like me speaking of September 11, 2001 and like 1980. That's, that's weird, right? Okay, I'm just dragging. Some of you are like, oh, oh. The Exodus hadn't happened yet. They haven't been in slavery yet. This is Joseph, the multi-technicolor coat guy, right? Him makes mention of the Exodus. It hasn't happened yet. Exodus 19 hasn't happened yet. They haven't been made into a people yet. They haven't been coming into together at the mountain. They haven't had their nation's laws codified yet. He hasn't yet heard them. He hasn't yet delivered them. He hasn't yet made them a people. He hasn't yet committed to be their God. Yet he makes mention of the Exodus. If I'm Isaac, Jacob, or Joseph, I'm longing for that. That promise fulfilled, that covenant given to Abraham. The covenant relationship kept. So where does this come from? Joseph is not in the land He sojourned out of the land to Egypt by slavery, risen to prominence and governance. And what does he ask for? I want to go home. I want to go to the land. My father Abraham had a covenant promise from God. It's not yet realized. And if I'm here, it won't be. Take my bones with you to the land because you're going home. Calvin talks about how motivating it was for them to know that Joseph, the one who had provided for all of them as they continued to multiply then, says, we're not staying here, guys. This is just a stopover. He can mention the exodus well before it ever happens because he knows they're exiting Egypt sometime. This isn't the promised land. We have to go where the covenant promise is supposed to happen. These blessings matter and I'm looking forward to them because it's wrapped up in the covenant that was made with my father Abraham these blessings that we see here from Jacob and from Joseph and from Isaac are all a matter of keeping them in covenant that's what sets it apart from any other blessing you say why is he mentioning these blessings here because it's not just a regular one it's not just a regular one I mean Cain would probably go on to bless his kids Who cares, right? I'll go on to bless my kids. Who cares, right? It's a blessing. We need to understand that this particular blessing that he's talking about is is much more than a hope of carrying on his name or his legacy. I mean, if you consider me in that case, right, and for that, me in this sense, I'm, I'm hopeless, right? Despite my best efforts, the line of Johnson, if it were dependent on me, will, will end with my death. I have four girls, right? In that sense, I'll fade into the pages of history. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about a regular blessing. We're not just trying to keep the name of Abraham going. We're talking about this covenant fulfillment. That's what's getting passed. Well, that changes everything. Not only does that change everything, but everyone needs and wants to know where that's going. All the rest of Jacob's kids will bless their children. But only one gets the blessing. The covenant promise. This is probably my favorite thing that I discovered this week. This is absolutely brilliant from one commentator. He says this, For Isaac... This was something more than the insubstantial hope that his name would be kept alive in a physical posterity. For his children were the guarantee of his own future. And as much as his faith was focused on the line of the promise. And this promise, as we have seen, belonged to him and to his father Abraham no less than to his posterity. Far from being the end of him, his death was but a milestone along the way to that better country on which his hope was fixed. The type of faith that we're talking about is the type of faith where Isaac is saying, this isn't just good for my name. This isn't just good for my children. This is good for me. This covenant promise and its fulfillment is my, I'm getting ready to die, future hope. 
What land is Isaac going to when he dies? The heavenly land. This is his inheritance still. This is the hope that he has now. It's not just some blessing. It's not just his name going on. This is his guarantee of his own future. The covenant being fulfilled would be the place that Isaac spends the rest of his days, and we will one day join him. That is incredible. There's an incredible view of the future. That is an incredible view of faith. I absolutely love this. His children were the guarantee of his own future. In that sense, my name might die off. But I have a posterity, an inheritance that will go on into glory in the children that I have. But also even in the spiritual children that I have. There's people being brought into covenant promise. What we have to understand here is that this passing of the promise from Genesis 3.15 is what's actually happening. The seed of the woman. The seed of the woman. It's later revealed to Abraham as being through you. And now Isaac's own future hope and rest in Mount Zion, even in death, rests on the line of the promise. Those are eyes to see. Though his in particular were dim. So, what does this mean for us? We need to know this. That even by the circumstances of their burial, these patriarchs declare that they awaited the fulfillment of the covenant promises and the eternal life beyond the grave. And as Calvin says, it sharpens the desire of the people so that they would look more earnestly for their redemption. Joseph saw it. We can cry out to God. What do we see at the beginning of Exodus? God heard their cries. This covenant ruled their lives. They got it from their fathers, and it was his to pass down to whom God would will. What's especially significant about this that separates it even from the promise aspect is that covenants, I think, tell you what you're worth. Covenants tell you what you're worth. It's one thing to be promised something. That's cool. It has a cost. But that promise then ends. It's more of an exchange, of a free exchange often. But when we talk about a covenant, we're talking about a relationship. We're talking about a suzerain that comes in and has some kind of position of power and willingly enters into a relationship with something else. Inside of this document, we find terms, conditions, rules, blessings, curses, if it's kept or not kept. The covenants tell you what you're worth because you get to see everything really under contract. So the challenge, if we first consider what does our life look like as a sojourner, I'd press you deeper. Sojourner, how do you live your life under covenant? How do you live your life under covenant? We'll explore two. We'll talk about marriage and we'll talk about the church. Marriage is a covenant relationship. Do you take your vows seriously? When's the last time you thought about them? (laughs) That'd probably be helpful. Do you take your responsibilities seriously? You say, yeah, absolutely. Okay, fair enough. What are they? (laughs) Can you tell me what those are? Oh, okay. That's where we see whether or not you've considered it. What are your responsibilities in the marriage covenant? There's easy, obvious ones, for sure. We know the big ones. Ephesians 5 pushes pretty hard on those. They can be hard to do, but they're obvious. We know those. What about the more obscure ones? Have you ever considered in your marriage of simply just treating your spouse as another Christian? Because that's what they are. And so much comes with that. You treat them better than anyone else. Romans 12 tells us that. I'll do one another in honor. That certainly applies inside the marriage. Or do you use them up? Because where else will they go? A.W. Pink says this. It was terrifying and sobering. 
He said, it is this which should speak loudly to our hearts. He who yields to the lusts of the flesh injures his spiritual instincts and opens wide the door for the devil to impose upon him and deceive him with his lies. He who allows natural sentiments and affections to override the requirements of God's revealed will is reduced to a humiliated state in the end. How often it proves that a man's spiritual foes are they of his own household. Isaac loved Esau unwisely. How dangerous it is. How often it proves true that man's spiritual foes are those of his own household. And we talk about being strong fathers, strong families, building strong households, being patriarchs. How often we find enemies within our own walls. But let's start with you, patriarch, husband. You should be a defender. You should be a provider. You should be a leader. Your chief responsibility to your wife is loving. There's an interesting snapshot when we consider Isaac and then we consider Moses. If you look back to their accounts, we see that Isaac was 120 years old and it says his eyes were dim. But then in a minute, we're getting ready to tackle Moses. And it says that Moses was 120 and his eyes were not dim. And we have a, a stark contrast between the two. Many commentators that I, I looked at were suggesting, although it, recognizing it's a presumption, that it appears that Isaac was pretty self-indulging. It seems like a lot of his love for Esau is wrapped around venison. He really liked that meat pie. In fact, even leading up into the blessing, they make a note that instead of fasting and praying prior to giving the blessing, what did he ask? Go get some more venison that I might have this meal before I give the blessing. Self-indulgence that seems to have tweaked his affections for one son over the other. Suggest that self-control was definitely a primary issue him. And certainly, if we look at Titus 2, we know that that's the chief and only thing that older men are supposed to train younger men in. Self-control. Self-control over mind, body, will, husbands, are those the things that you tackle? Are those the things that you're being challenged in? That you're being sharpened in? That you're going deeper in? <coughs> If you can't think back to the last challenge that you had, particularly as a man, in relation to self-control over mind, body, or will, you're struggling. You might be the foe in your own household. If you can't think about how you're being sharpened and who's sharpening you, because iron sharpens iron. It's somebody. Somebody in your life is sharpening you in your mind, in your body, in your will. Or how you're going deeper I cannot express enough how important it is for men to slow down and purposefully consider. We tackled this this past week in Gold Pizza explicitly. I pulled it from uh, Pastor Jeff's sermon last week. This idea of considering is huge. We just go through life and react. You're not leading if you simply react. We just go through life and respond. You're not setting tone. We go through life and not actually develop anything because we're just making it through. And we end up wasting and consuming. If we're not purposely, purposefully considering, then we're not developing those things that God has given us. And so, I want to encourage you. Think about mind, body, will. Purposefully consider where you are, and purposefully consider voluntary hardship in each of those three things. And do those this week. What is it that you need to sharpen in your mind? Maybe it's just considering. Maybe it's saying, how much have I considered over the last summer? What have I given myself to think about? What is challenging that I need to think about? 
For some of you, it might just be learning something. Learning something about the scriptures, learning something about the world, or learning about yourself. You think about your body. What voluntary hardship are you placing your body under? That it might be sharpened, that it might be challenged, that you might go deeper. And the will. What do you give in to? What are you running from in cowardice? If you are called to be a courageous leader, husbands, what are you running from in fear? Consider those things and place yourself under voluntary hardship for those. If anything, sit down and consider the curse. The curse that you're under. Your work will fight you. That is an expected outcome for you, men. So, when you do your work, do it purposefully and do it well and expect that it will fight against you. Consider and don't live to this pitiful state that we see Isaac in. Church, recognize Esau was unregenerate And he was prepared to hand over the blessing of the seed, hand over the covenantal blessing and promise to Esau. For what? Sentiment. Venison. Wives. Should be submissive. Should be helping. Your chief responsibility to your husband is respecting. How easy it is to reverse those and simply love him more and more by respecting him less and less. It's interesting that in our passage here in Hebrews 11, twice in short order, we see a wife manipulating her husband for God's will when in each instance it's a personal fleshly desire and a lack of faith. Sarah, for God's will, for the, for the sake of the promise, For the covenant-keeping God, take my hand, maiden. Rebecca, for the sake of God's will, because he told me, God told me that he's going to take Jacob over Esau. That he's rejecting Esau. For the sake of God's will, he told me, go deceive your father. Go lie to him. Go do it by deception. Our enemy's chief tactic. Twice in short order, a wife manipulating her husband for God's will, of course. My question then is, will you trust God even when your husband is about to bless the wrong son? Will you trust God even when your husband is about to bless the wrong son? I mean, consider... The same thing that I encourage the men. Consider you. Consider your curse. You will want to be head. So what should you do? Fight to trust. Fight to trust. My Old Testament class is tired of hearing this from me. I think they haven't actually said that. Trust. Right? Numbers, what is he teaching us? Dependency. Job, that we tackled today, what is he teaching? Trust. Ruth, what is he teaching? Trust me. Even when you won't see it. Even when you'll die before you see it. Trust. We get to walk into the Scriptures with the God's eye view. He's revealed all things necessary to us for a life of godliness. So we get to see Job. And we get to see his encounter with his friends, with his wife. We get to see God's encounter with Satan. Job doesn't get to see that. God does come and talk to Job. He doesn't explain himself. What's he calling him to do? Trust. Why is trusting the antidote to wanting to be the head? Because you don't get an explanation all the time. Even if you do, it might not be satisfactory. And you certainly won't be persuaded all the time. But my question is, is if you have to have an explanation, a satisfactory explanation, and you have to be persuaded, 
Are you submitting? There's no longer submission. You've been persuaded. You're not trusting Him. You're not trusting God. You're trusting you. That's what Sarah did. That's what Rebecca did. It's a hard place to be, I admit. It's a hard place to be to lead. But you're not trusting Him. You're not trusting what He's going to do. You trust God. We see this picture in this passage with Joseph. Joseph brings his sons to his father, Jacob, Israel, to bless. And as is customary, you're supposed to put in the blesser's right hand the oldest son. Manasseh was supposed to get the blessing. And so Joseph brings him to Jacob's right hand and Ephraim to his left. And when he blesses, he's supposed to give the primary one to Manasseh and the secondary one to Ephraim. So he does what is customary. He brings them appropriately. What does Jacob do? (laughs) He switches it. He switches it on him, right? Now look, I'm not God. But Isaac had to go up the mountain and hope that he was coming back down, right? Joseph sees this happen, and he takes his dad's hands and puts them back. And he goes, no, no, I did it on purpose. So, man, when, when you see that, when you hear that Isaac's getting ready to give the blessing to Esau, and says, go get some food, let's powwow, and I'll pass this baby. When you're in the other room, you're like, now's the time we have to get it, he's going to mess this up. I'm just saying... God does things like throw rams up on mountains, get Joseph's father to cross his hands at the last minute. I don't know what would have happened. I do know that God is sovereign and he's used all of their sin to accomplish his purposes. And he'll continue to do so through the guy closest to his heart, David, and his own sin. But Do we have to have an explanation? Do we have to be persuaded? What happens when your husband messes up? And the big things, it can definitely be difficult. But what about in so much smaller daily matters? Do you give in to sentiment? Frustration? Anger? Loneliness? Unmet needs? I know that these are all challenges. I know that these are all trials. I know that for some of you, these are sufferings. But what does your covenant mean then? It's not just a blessing. It's not just an acquaintance. It's not just a relationship. It's not even the casual Christian-to-Christian relationship that you have, where you still have obligations to them, whether they're part of your covenant family or not. This is your husband. What does your covenant mean then? The danger, Proverbs 14.1 tells us, is that your foolishness will tear down your own house with your own hands. I can't tell you how hard it is to be building something and every term you turn around to do the next step, you've seen that it's fallen apart. Things keep breaking. Trying to repair a ceiling. You take down the first layer, you see more stuff under the second layer, then all of a sudden you see lathe, and then all of a sudden you see raccoon poop and bird's nests, and now instead of just patching a small thing, you're taking down all the ceiling. So let's just keep going. Let's take down the whole attic, and let's do the whole roof, and then just rebuild the whole house, right? Or I'm in my garage trying to put together these shelves that I've had for a long time, and when I get there, they're in great condition, but they're the kind that like sort of snap together, but then you go to move them and everything comes undone. Or you like set those and like stay. You turn around and you grab your thing and it just collapses, right? It can feel that way for your husbands, ladies. And they're trying to build and you're resisting, struggling, whatever it might be with these things. And you're accidentally tearing down your own house. Be careful. Be careful of that. See how this covenant 
men, women, in marriage rules your life. This covenant rules your life. Covenants rule everything. It rules your life. And listen, to the promise point, it guarantees your future in one way or another. Whether it ends in blessing or curses, it depends on whether you keep the covenant or not, just like any other covenant. But man, I tell you, inside of this picture of marriage, it guarantees your future one way or another. Do you see how it tells you what you're worth in the eyes of the other? Covenants tell you what you're worth. When your husband exchanges ease for his commitments to you, how does that make you feel? How does that show you what you're worth? When your wife is happy to sacrifice you over her anger, how does that make you feel? How does that show you what you're worth? Covenants tell us what we're worth. Let's talk about the church. What are you actually here for? I ask that question a lot when I preach. I recognize that. Why are you here? Hopefully the call to worship answered that today. You have a God, and he's called his people to worship him, and so you do it. There's more to it, though, right? Why are you actually here? Why are you a part of this church? Covenant members, why are you a covenant member here at Christ the Lord in Dayton, Ohio in 2023? When we look at the covenant in the Old Testament, we look at the expectation of the patriarchs here. There are two big things they wanted. They wanted to be a people. They wanted to be the nations. They wanted to be a people. They wanted to become the Israelites. We first see that first echo in Jacob, who's called Israel, right? They wanted to be a people. And what was the other thing they wanted? They wanted to have a God. They wanted God, Yahweh, to be their God. So church, you're here for a covenant. Are you here to have a people? Are you here to have a God? Now we often emphasize the God aspect. That's kind of our job as the church. Uh, we're supposed to do that. But I want to encourage you today to consider the people. Are you here for the people? Ephesians 1 and 2 tell us that we can come together to be a people simply because of the fact that we share Jesus in common. And if it were not for Jesus in common amongst us, most of us would never get to know each other. And that's good and fun sometimes and okay. But we get to be a people together because of what Jesus has done. So as a people, what do you do? What does that covenant relationship mean to you? With all the detail that I dove in with the uh, husband and wife, we share that together as covenant members. There are terms and stipulations and expectations and blessings and curses that come with being this people here. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 13 give us a good object lesson in that. Let love be genuine. Is your love for one another here genuine? Are you hiding something? Are you keeping things from each other? Is your love full in effect to them? Are you abhorring what is evil? And are you holding fast to what is good? What evil are you just kind of putting under the rug? What good are you not celebrating? Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's what you should be coming here to do every Sunday, even though it's early, even though it was before hot. And now is moderate. I'm not cold. I'd like to be cold. It's moderate. What are you coming here to do? To outdo one another in showing honor? Is that why you serve in the children? To show honor to these other parents? To show honor to these kids? Is that why you're faithful to the class that you go to? To show honor to your teacher? To those that you're learning with? So that you might have these things in common? So that the people in my class have Job together? can encourage each other not to be bitter because God's bringing David, the king of, of, of to God's own heart, through your line in just three generations, so hang on. That's outdoing one another in honor. Not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Are you all in? Or are you just here to get your God? 
and happy to be on the same team? Or are you here for relationship? Because just like the other covenants, you find out how much you're worth in the eyes of others in the covenant. How much are we worth to God in this covenant of the church? Well, we saw that last week. Romans 8.23, he gave his own son. What else will he withhold? There's nothing, there's nothing else. Well, what about you? What are you withholding? How much do you love the covenant body? What are you willing to exchange for the covenant body? Covenants rule everything. And it ruled their lives so that at their deathbed, they understood what it was to pass on this blessing. Last thing I want you to see is children of Abraham. Children of Abraham. We know the background here. Isaac wasn't the firstborn, right? Ishmael. Jacob wasn't the firstborn. Ephraim, Joseph's son, who the line of promise is not going through. This is just another blessing happening, and this still gets flipped. Ephraim wasn't the firstborn. Manasseh was. So the question is, there's kind of a pattern, um, not necessarily really one, and that pattern's going to change a little bit, but who gets to be the heir to the promise? Like, we've been expecting that it would be the oldest son, and in many senses, the oldest son does get that promise, uh, but in a lot of the early ones, it doesn't. It's, it's flipped. Who gets to be the heir to the promise? Who gets to be part of this? Who gets to be children of Abraham? <clears throat> well, with the promise, it's certainly not by the established humanly tradition. God clearly directs that in other ways. He's changing the game on that. It's going off into the second born. But for the rest of us who are not the <laughs> direct line of Jesus, um, what about who gets to be the children of Abraham? Who gets to be included in Genesis 15? Who gets to be part of the nations that, worship, that, that serve Israel? And who gets to be part of the nation of Israel that gets served by the nations? I want to be part of the descendants that outnumber the stars. Like, if, if, I, get to, if I get to say anything about the matter, I'd like to be part of that group. Who gets to be them? I mean, is Esau a child of Abraham? Is Ishmael a child of Abraham? Hope you see my double meaning here, particularly with that one. What hope is there for Benjamin or even Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's sons, adopted by Jacob? Jesus encountered this too and outlines, I just love this passage in John, John chapter 8, 36 to 47. So if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, well, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to him, if if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you'd love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. Thank you.
The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The commentator says this, the message is clear. The line of the promise is not the line of the flesh, but the line of faith. The true error is not the outward error, but the inward error. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his descendants, Romans 2. For in the ultimate perspective, they who are one by faith with Christ, and only they are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise, Galatians 3.29. That community of believers, in other words, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, John 1.12. Are you a child of Abraham? Do you get to be part of this patriarchal blessing? Do the words of God find a home in you? When they are spoken, do you hear and receive truth? Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. Do the words of God find home and residence in you? If not, you are not a child of Abraham. This blessing is not for you. There is time to become one. How do you do that? You become born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. But as Jesus will tell Nicodemus in just a couple chapters, you'll be reborn by the Spirit. You'll be reborn by the Spirit and you become a child of Abraham. And you, like Enoch, will believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. That's what it is to live in covenant blessing. To have the promise in covenant to be a child of God. You believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. Just look a little higher in Hebrews 11. You think about this. There's a reward. This is the reward. This is the blessing. This is the covenant. This is what you get. Think about the silly, stupid stuff that motivates us, the rewards that motivate us, right? You give a kid a box of candy bars and you tell him that he'll get a $1 prize if he sells the whole box, he'll sell the whole box. We used to get rewarded for our grades. I like to do that with our kids and take them to Magic Castle or Chuck E. Cheese or something else. Very expensive if they do well in school. If not, it's really cheap, so... A little bit of uh, conflict of interest there. Think about how many books have been read in the course of American history simply because at the end of the books you get four slices of a personal pan of Pizza Hut for the book it. A lot. You believe Pizza Hut exists? You believe it will reward you if you seek it and read books? Well, you can draw near to Pizza Hut. <laughs> How simple it is at the end of a life to just say, I have believed God. I trust him. He's made me his people and he's made himself my God. Matthew Henry says this, though the grace of faith is of universal use throughout our whole lives, it is especially so when we come to die. Faith has its great work to do at the last, to help believers to finish well, to die to the Lord, so as to honor him by patience, hope, and joy, so as to leave a witness behind them of the truth of God's word and the excellency of his ways, for the conviction and establishment of all that attend them in their dying moments. Church, you can bet your life on that. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is your word that we stand on and there's nothing else. We thank you for that firm foundation that we have. Lord, we thank you that notwithstanding every human thought, God never speaks a word in vain. 
How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can we say? And to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Father, your word is all that we need. Let us trust you. Let us know that your character is tied up in your covenant, that we can trust your character and your covenant. And Father, we get to be one of your sons. We get to receive the blessing. And we get to live in covenant blessing. And not curse. I us trust you, depend on you, I'll look to you. From our starting day, when we were reborn, to just like these men, to our dying day. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.